and welcome back to another episode of Artist Avenue. Today I am talking to the one and only, the fabulous George Yore. George trained at Manfi Academy of Theatre Arts in London. He made his debut in the London company of Wicked at the Apollo Victoria in the role of Buck, later reprising his role as part of the original UK and Ireland tour, spending a total of four years with the show. Other credits include Tobias in Sweeney Todd at the Welsh National Opera and the UK tour, Hare in the European Arena tour, and Zaki in the original London cast of Big Fish at the Other Palace with Kelsey Grammer. He was a series finalist in Britannia High on ITV and also performed alongside Rod Stewart and Michael Bublé as part of Rod Stewart's Christmas on ITV. In 2017, George took on the lead role of Rusty in the London redevelopment workshop of Starlight Express, directed by Arlene Phillips. He was later invited by Andrew Lloyd Webber to record I Am The Starlight, duetting with Misha Paris for his latest album, Unmasked The Platinum Collection. George is also an accomplished vocal and performance coach and has spent the past 11 years teaching at some of the UK's leading conservatoires. Most recently, George was invited by the BBC to join four other industry experts and sit on the professional jury representing the UK at the Eurovision Song Contest in 2019. Before we dive into George's incredibly unique journey, I would like to remind you that due to the current circumstances, we had to record this episode remotely via Zoom. Therefore, the quality might suffer at points. Nevertheless, please keep listening. As I always say, for a 2021 podcast, it's content over technical quality. So without further ado, enjoy this wickedly good episode. Hello, hello, stranger. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for asking me along to do this. Thank you for coming on. Let's start with an introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, the whole shebang, basically. The whole shebang. I'll try and talk you through it. Uh, Let's go from the beginning. So I am from the west of Scotland originally, a place called Airdrie, but I just say Glasgow because no one really knows where Airdrie is. And I moved to London 16 years ago this year, which sounds crazy. I like to believe I'm not old enough to have been here as long as I have, but I have been. Um, So I moved here in 2005 to train. I went to Mount View Academy of Theatre Arts to study my degree in musical theatre, after which I was very fortunate that my first job out of college was Wicked in the West End. I joined the show in 2008 and stayed there for three years the first time round uh, but I think we're going to come to that later on probably um, yeah and ever since then I suppose that over the past well now 13 years what I've managed to do is I'm very fortunate to do is balance my career on stage as well as in a studio with students which is where we met and I'm sure we'll come to that too um, and also to be directing projects in my own right so I've been I think I'm one of the lucky ones that I've never I've never had to worry about getting up and going to work like I really I I just love what I do in whatever capacity it is and I think that as time's gone on it's given me the opportunity to go do you know what I'm going to say yes to this because it makes me happy and I'm going to say no to that even though outwardly it might look like the opportunity of a lifetime I think that's the one thing that I I kind of take comfort in now at this stage in my life and in my career is that I've got comfortable saying no to things as much as I have saying yes to them. Yeah, that's wonderful. And it's so important to to know what to say yes and no to. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to your once upon a time, as I like to call it, your beginning of your journey, little baby George. <laughs> little baby George. God, he feels like that was a while ago. Um, so yeah, I would, I suppose the story starts when I was about eight years old. My mum and dad were amazing at throwing my sister and I into as many things as were available to us and really to see what stuck you know so I was that kid that on a Monday I went to youth theatre and on a Tuesday I played in a jazz band and on a Wednesday I went to taekwondo and you know I did (laughs) a bit of everything in fact there's a story there that I'll come back to but yeah in terms of my performing life I joined the local children's theatre when I was, yeah, about eight or nine years old, had no real experience at that point, you know, other than reading a poem at school or, you know, uh, singing in the school choir. But I did, I had started training as as a musician by that point. So I started learning as a keyboard player and then eventually as a pianist from the age of seven. And I also started as uh, an instrumentalist on the cornet and then eventually the trumpet. So it was kind of 
that felt at one point like that would be the focus because for whatever reason, I just, they, they came quite naturally to me. And I don't come from a musical family. There are no performers in any corner of my family. Nobody really sings, acts or dances or plays anything. So I don't really know where it came from, but for whatever reason it did. And thankfully there were opportunities available to me that let me try it out and see what stuck. And here I am all these years later and didn't realise that everything at that point would all culminate in what was going to become, you know, a life's work, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I didn't know you do, like you played all those instruments. I knew you played piano, but that's really yeah. cool that you learned all the other ones as well. So I studied as a, again, just whatever, whatever was in the water at that period in time. There was so many opportunities for young people where I came from and a huge focus on the arts. There was a children's theatre, a youth theatre, then the Scottish youth theatre. But musically, you know, I it was all through school. As a trumpet player, there was an open night, you know, for come and have a look. And my mum and dad came along and that was it. They, the cor- I was small as well, so the cornet was the only one that I could hold up. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, it was the most compact for my little stature. So that stuck. And then... Um, there was a the guy the the man that taught me Mr Smith uh, James Smith his name is conducted the local brass band and I come from like I say the west of Scotland and there was a huge history in Scotland of brass bands uh, and it was a real thing it was a I think a very proud moment for both my parents but my dad as well because he'd worked in the mines at one point so and that's where the whole kind of culture of the brass bands comes from and I played in that for years with people that I then went on to to study with for a long, long time. You know, I was a junior student at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, which is now the RCS, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, until I moved to London. So for me, the, the pool was always, do I, do I do music? Do I do drama? It was really hard to call because I was, I was excelling at both of them at the same time. But then that meant that my commitment was, I was always letting someone down because I said yes to everything. Mm -hmm. like I'm talking about now I don't do that so much but because I was just so desperate to be involved in everything that I could be I would have said yes to you know the academy the school show the musical theatre master class the jazz band whatever it was and then before you know it you're kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul as they say and someone would get let down in the middle of it so I had to make that decision and that's then when I ended up at drama school yeah yeah before we go on to that I want to know your taekwondo story (laughs) right so that's very current so that was the thing that I admittedly, and I've told my mum this, I, I liked least because I suppose if I look back at it, it wasn't all about me. You know, if I was on stage and I was singing or playing something, it was all about me. And actually in a, in a Taekwondo, it's a Korean martial art. Like any martial art, it's about discipline and hierarchy and he's the boss and you're not, or she's the boss and you're not. And I enjoyed it because I went and I kept going. But if ever I want if I had a show on a on a Wednesday night, it was, well, you can go, but you'll have to go late because you've got Taekwondo, you know. So my mum was, a, that's what I thank my mum for, was that she made me commit to things. And if I'd started, it was all about, you can finish it and then we'll talk about it. But the way that it ended up going was, again, I was doing quite well at that and I was just all prepped to set my black belt when I was about 15 or 16, which would have been not the end, but certainly the payoff for all of those years. And inevitably everything else got on top of me and I just couldn't. I couldn't commit to the time, so I had to step away from it. And I can't say that I missed it up until last year, lockdown happens, uh, probably the second one. And I'm sitting here, like everybody, watching watching Netflix back to front. And uh, The Karate Kid came on, and I loved that film as a kid, so I'm watching it in September last year. And I had this pang of, God, I missed that. I missed that discipline, and I missed that hard work. And, you know, maybe as a grown-up, it's something to revisit. So I found a class I live in Crouch End in North London and I found one and it just so happened that the teacher is a master instructor in the UK he's one of six master instructors in England and I signed up and I've been going ever since I go three times a week and I love it more than I can even tell you I love 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 it because everything in my life is about the theatre and nine times out of ten I'm leading the class or I'm directing the show but this is so it's wonderful to be a student again and to not have all the answers and to be pushed again and to work hard. And I think that just with age and experience comes focus. The focus I didn't have when I was 12, I do when I'm 33, you know. And I actually reached out to my first teacher in Scotland and I said, you might not remember me, but I have come back to Taekwondo. And he said, 
George, of course I remember you. And I, of course you've ended up on stage because you were so naughty and you were so funny and your energy was this and that. And I thought, well, maybe it was written in the stars. Maybe all these people that I thought they were telling me off, they were actually going, yeah, so it's all good, just not for here. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> um, you can't be the centre of attention all the time. So yeah, it's been brilliant. And I think definitely for going through this past 12 months, it's been a lovely distraction. And also it's fantastic for your mind, just an hour to tune out and listen into something and totally focus on you because I'm not very good at meditating. Uh, I have tried and semi succeeded at times, but because my brain goes 100 miles an hour, I I need something to focus on. And this class has proven to be that because you don't get to talk about it. You don't get to sit and have a chin wag in the corner. You just have to be switched on. And it does take you out of your head for a little while. And I've really found that hugely beneficial. It also means that I get my exercise in now. Too. Mm. so um, yeah it's been brilliant I love it really love it yeah and what a fantastic way like usually you'd hear like everyone being like yeah I do my hit workouts at home but you just do a completely different version of exercise and it mm. connects the mind and the body so that's fantastic yeah and you meet new people who are nothing to do with my day job which is brilliant because mm. listen no one loves show folk more than me <laughs> you know but there is something quite refreshing when we were in the gym turning up on a Wednesday and someone's just finished a shift as a chemistry teacher and someone's a carer and but you're all just walking up and doing this class together it's brilliant I love it I really love it mm. and going back to the throwback theme <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to ask you like obviously you came from beautiful Scotland and we talked about that a bit but how was your journey auditioning for actual colleges then well, there's a story. It's almost like uh, it's like you knew I was coming, Christiana. Um, you won't know this story because I haven't really thought. I would never have told you about it. But yes, there came that moment of realization where I, I knew that this was this was the focus. And as much as I had amazing opportunities in Scotland, what we didn't have access to was the most current information about vocational training, certainly outside of Scotland, because there wasn't really any at an undergraduate level. You could do it at what we would have in Scotland. They're called higher national diplomas. And it's the equivalent of like a BTEC in the rest of the UK. And my drama teacher at school, who I was very close to, of course, cliche, her daughter had got a place at this college. It was full-time, two-year vocational or pre-vocational musical theatre training. So I look it up and I think, oh my goodness, like this is me. So I audition and I get in. And I'm thrilled about it. And I was going to leave school a year early because mum, again, said, get your qualifications, make sure you've passed all your exams and then we'll talk about it. So I've got my mum to thank for an awful lot. I'll talk about my mum a lot because she keeps me on the straight and narrow. So I get in, leave school. And then over the summer holidays, I hung out with all of my year group. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't leave school. I'm going to miss the final year. And I really got a fright. So I wrote a letter and I'll never forget, it's so cringe now. I actually put, you know, the two theatrical faces at the top of it. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> and sent it to these people and I was like I'm so sorry but I'm not coming in September or August as I can't I can't leave school and they were they were cool I go back to school for a week and I go no I have to I have to leave but I've got to go and take <laughs> that place so I phoned them up on a Saturday and I said hi yeah, it's George I'm like oh hi George he says any chance that space is still available they were like well you're a week late but yes you can start on Monday so that was it so I phoned the school and I left school and I went to college and then I start to get wise to colleges and London and the business and all that kind of thing. Mountview was the one that I knew most about and I knew people that went there. And I think somewhere deep down inside me, I was a little bit like, I'd never get in there. Why would anyone, you know, why would they let me in? There's that kind of self-doubt, I suppose, which is true of anybody in the arts, but certainly as a teenager, when you're looking at this overwhelming process of where do you go? And I spoke to a friend of mine and they went, just try, you know, just go for it. So it was between there and Artshead was the other one that I really wanted to go to. But the college that I was at, whether it's true or not, maintained to have this very close relationship with the team at Artshead. So I was worried that if I applied there, they would somehow find out that I was trying to leave a year early and they would stop me getting in. That was where my little mind took me. But I suddenly went, well, they've never talked about Mountview very much, so they must not know anybody there. So I'm going to just go for that one. <laughs> so... It's crazy how our mind plays all these tricks with us. <clears throat> oh goodness, yeah. Well, also they had opportunities when I was at when I was on the course. It was a very small cohort of students because it was brand new. The co- the co- the school wasn't, but the course was. And one of the boys had got into arts, and one had got into GSA, and one had got into the postgrad at the RCS. And I thought, 
no, I'm going to give it a try. So I go down to London, get to my Mount View audition, which was always on a Thursday. Don't ask me why, but that was audition day back in the day. And as I get there, I've only told one person at home that I'm going. I get to reception and she says, oh, George, we've just had a call from such and such in Scotland to make sure that you got here okay. So they had found out because someone had dobbed me in and they'd called ahead to try and psych me out. So I'm like, well, I've travelled all the way to London. I'm here and you've, you've ruined it for me, thinking they're going to just ask me to go home because it was really brutal back in the day as well. It was a cut in the morning. There was a cut in the afternoon. So, you know, it was like elimination time. Mm. Anyway, I get through the whole audition day and I loved it. I walked into the building and I, like I tell everybody, if you love the building and you, then, and you get in, go there. It doesn't matter where you go. If you've got good teachers, you'll get a good training. But if you feel an affinity with a building, that's important. Mm. Absolutely true. So get to the end of the day and I've made it through to the, the last part of the day. And the lady who ticked me in said, George, can I have a word? thought oh god I'm in trouble just because I always I was always in trouble for something when I was younger so I just assumed that I was going to be in trouble for something today so she takes me into this room and I'm just left sitting there with her she's like just hang on someone wants to speak to you and I thought what is happening so then the director of musical theatre comes in a guy called Paul Sabe who I kind of owe almost everything to Sam Spencer Lane who's a dear friend of mine now she was the head of dance and those two sat down and they said would you like to study here I said yes I would like okay well we're going to offer you a place to study here I was like what and they said um and we would like to offer you a full scholarship to come so I I kind of start stuttering and I can't remember what I said and I I I tried to give someone a hug and they kind of went okay yeah cool see in September off you go so I get out and I think, right, well, that's it. Decision made. So I get back to Scotland and people in my year are like, you're getting kicked out. Like they've, they've told us you're out. You know, they've been talking about you all day. So trying to do the right thing. I turn up on the Monday morning to go in and apologise and empty my locker. So I get there and they say, they come, they come up behind me, the principals. They were horrible, horrible people. And I said, um, I'm guessing you want a word. They went, no, I'm guessing you've got a ballet class. Like, go, get to ballet at nine o'clock. I was like, what? So I get up, get my ballet gear on, walk into the ballet class. And the teacher even said, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. I was like, well, neither did I. So she puts the track on and we get to the first exercise and she walks in. Get your stuff, empty your locker and get out. So she'd done it just to embarrass me in front of the whole class. That's um, horrible. Yeah, so then I get to I get to London and I get to the first end of my first week and the head of musical theatre, Paul, calls me into the office and I thought, oh, here we go. He said, I want to show you something. They'd emailed him the day that he'd offered me my place and told so many horrible, horrible lies about me that I was a bully, I was a drug addict, there was all these things. You know, how could you possibly want him at your school? We're getting rid of him, all that. And thankfully, Paul was wiser than I gave him credit for, maybe in the first instance, and just said, my school, my rules, fresh start, right? I said, yes, please, because none of it's true. And that was it. So he didn't listen to it. Because if he had done, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Because if I, if they had ruined that opportunity for me, I would have not have had the confidence to apply anywhere else because I was so concerned that people were on to me that I'd done something wrong. And all I'd done was take an opportunity that was offered to me. So mm-hmm. I really, I love, I love, love, love the pre-vocational colleges around the country that fuel all that talent and passion and skills but they have to bear in mind that it's okay to be the feeder it's okay to be the one that's setting the students up for a b and c it's not that the training has to be any better or worse but we all know that if you're going to you know if you're going to go and do your three years somewhere then you're going to get a very different opportunity at one of those top inverted comma top schools than you are in a community college you know long term and that's no comment on anybody that teaches at, you know, diploma level or BTEC level or even just a local dance school or a local drama club. They're all hugely important. And that's what set me on my way. But, yeah, I do thank Paul for not listening. Mm. Yeah, That was a I godsend. Do. That's really It really good. was, yeah. It shows you how one conversation can change the entire destiny of your life. Yeah. One. Yeah, and yeah. one decision that's out of your control. It's fascinating, really. Mm. Yeah, but you got in, you've done your three years, you probably had yes. like the time of your life. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, wild. I loved it. And how did your career evolve then after graduating? Did you feel prepared? I think 
drama school can only get you so ready for the job. Nothing prepares you until you're on the job. That was a huge moment of realization for me because we were very fortunate at drama school. There was, um, we were given very realistic goals and we were always told the truth. No one sugarcoated it. And I suppose we were all aware that it wasn't a level playing field. Not everyone was going to get the same opportunities. And actually, if you weren't good enough, then tough shit, really, right? Mm. Which might sound horrible, but sometimes you need to hear it because you're, you're banking your whole life's ambition on this decision. And I actually think there's something to be said for people that you're paying to know better to say to you, you've spent three years doing this, you've got ability, but I don't think that you have quite the skill set that you need for the jobs that you want to do. I've had this argument with other people, friends of mine and colleagues who say it's not our place to say, yes, you've got a career ahead of you or you haven't. I said, no, that's a different thing. But what I'm saying is if someone has aspirations of being uh, you know, a prima ballerina, but their ballet isn't very good, you're not going to take their money in good faith and go, you can do it when they can't point their toes or their leg only goes to 45. You know, there's just some physical things that are required for certain levels of work. And it takes all sorts to have a career, whether you want to be a performer, a creative, go to another country, sing, dance, act, direct, whatever it may be. But I think having an honest conversation with people is, is, what, is what you're going there for. You're not going there to be, you know, um, inflated and everyone thinks that it's easy because it's not easy and it's brutal at times and it can be really hard to navigate. I did know what to expect. I did. But maybe on maybe to the extreme where I maybe maybe I wasn't armed with the oh I can do this, but it is possible. Maybe there was a bit too much of the old school at times, perhaps. Anyway, get on the job and it just was an eye opener. You suddenly go, you're not the most important thing on on the project, you know, as an actor. Because you go through drama school and everything's about you and what you bring to the table and your ability and your assessment results and your degree and you're getting an agent. Suddenly you go, right, there's 40 other people, <clears throat> and actually you're the smallest group of people in the building because there's 150 people putting this show on around you. So I think that what you can't be prepared for is, is the running of a building when you've never worked in one. But I was, I was ready to know how to do the job, like to go in and physically deliver what was asked of me. But I was just so overwhelmed by the whole thing because, you know, I'd walked into what was then the biggest show in town probably the world at that point. It was the one that I wanted more than anything. And I was just, again, I was determined to get it right and probably slightly concerned that someone would snatch it off of me. I think I did a lot of that in my youth because of the stories I'm telling you, you know, where it was, it was never through being naughty or not caring. It was just spreading myself too thin or people misreading me and not understanding me because actually what I am is very loyal and very hardworking and very dedicated and hugely grateful for the opportunities that have come my way and whatever and whatever they are um and I yeah I was just so terrified that it, <laughs> it would all disappear it was too good to be true mm -hmm. um and again that that comes with experience you go no I, I know what I bring to the table and I see you start to see the bigger picture and how one conversation leads to another and one opportunity leads to another. And then you stop getting so hung up and bitter about it. You know, you don't worry about the things that you don't get because again, it's out of your control. It's fundamentally nothing you can do about it. Either you are right or you're not. That's it. Or you do the best or you're not. It's, there's no two ways about it, you know. Yeah. But my skills, I was ready with my skills. Yeah, I do mm -hmm. feel prepared. I, I, yeah, I felt well-trained in answer to your question. That's good. Mm. Yeah, and I think you raised such a good point about honesty. Like I'm all about that honesty and kindness because there's, if you're not honest, you're basically just like playing with people's minds. Exactly. And I just think that is, there's so much we have to go through in the industry, whatever part you're in it, but then playing with people's minds and like, just because of money and everything, I think, I think that just goes too far. So I think, I think that uh, what, what I try and do is come at, my job as a, as a teacher or a coach or a lecturer, or whatever you want to call it. But in that class, I assume everyone loves it and wants it as much as I did and do. Yeah. And then I know how to speak to them. Mm. And, I, you know, people would argue that I am the expert, inverted commas, in the room. I am because my skills to this point have allowed me to bring you to that point. But there's always someone up the chain and there's always someone that knows more and is better than or has more knowledge. And I think once you actually open your mind to the fact that it's always a team effort 
and that yes someone might i might say something in a class and it's the one bit of information that unlocks something in a student brilliant i live for those moments but it's also then when they get an opportunity i don't get to take ownership of that and say look at you know such and such because of me that's so egotistical and if you go into teaching for your own ego, it's the wrong job. It's got to be about the students and it's got to be, I think you have to be content in yourself in a, in a business that is so competitive and fiercely ambitious. You've got to know that you're comfortable with your skills and your experience and that you're not then accusing your students of snatching those opportunities away from you, mm. you know, or yeah. going, you know, you'll never do what I've done. Why not? What have, what have I got that you don't? I don't have some magic power. I just worked really hard, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. let's, I'm going to switch. So if we say on the topic of teaching, um, because as I said as well, when we chatted, like I always loved the energy that you brought to our classroom. It was always like really exciting and a fresh breeze. How did you fall into teaching and what does it actually give to you now as a performer still as well? Yeah, great question that because I actually, my as a kid, this ties in quite nicely with what I talked about at the start. When I didn't think there was any reality that I would ever be a professional actor, I was destined to be a primary school teacher. I wanted to be a primary school teacher. And as much as I was having a great time and I was so driven and motivated by all those things, I think underneath it, I was like, just pass your exams, get to uni and be a teacher. So I actually wanted to teach before I wanted to be on stage. Always, always. I even did my work experience at high school in my old primary school with my old teacher. And was just, And I think that is true testament to the teachers that I had as a young person. Certainly in primary school, I was blessed with just wonderful people who shape, they do, they shape you as a human being at primary school. And I think that you, a lot of your life's trajectory can be made or broken on how you relate to those people in your formative years. And I was so lucky that I just had great teachers that were very, well, we got a great education, but they also, they were aware of you as a person, for good or for bad, you know, not everyone, it's not, wasn't heaven. And there were teachers that I think, well, but you being a bit hard on me or being a bit nasty to me about that showed me how not to be. So I always say that my own teaching method is made up of the best and the worst of the people that taught me, because I know what I want out of a class as a student, and I know what I don't want out of it as a student, and I know what worked for me to learn and what didn't. So I started teaching when I was 16 uh, in a, a theatre company that I actually had been a, a student at. And when I moved to London, it was what paid me through college. So I got jobs teaching singing and dance, actually, which people laugh at because it was never my main strength. Good dancer, but not, you know, not a dance teacher. <laughs> so I blagged that one. Um, so yeah, I taught all the way through drama school. And then when I started on Wicked, I then that's when I started getting into colleges. So I've done both really as long as each other. And I definitely, definitely think that we're being an actor, sorry, we're being a teacher used to supplement me being an actor financially. It was a bit of extra cash. And also I got my outlet. The tables have turned so much in that what I learn as a teacher has hugely influenced my own work because you learn to practice what you preach. And you'll know this because you've been in my class. I would never ask anything of you that I couldn't do myself. Mm. And I wouldn't set challenges to people that I wouldn't be willing to take on myself. So I do think that it's given me a much greater perspective in my own work and also in how to negotiate personalities, how to represent yourself. You know, one feeds the other absolutely beautifully. It's not always been easy to balance that because the nature, obviously, of being an actor is that you're out of work for periods of time. And then it becomes difficult if you're still jobbing because you say, yeah, I'll teach that whole term for you. And then you get an opportunity and some places don't like it because it's inconsistency for the students. So it works both ways. But again, like I'm, I keep saying, I've managed to find that balance and everyone in my life knows that I have two jobs and they know where my priorities have to be at any one time. So that is now no longer an awkward conversation because I've made it that way. But it's taken years to figure that out, like a long, long time. Mm. Brilliant. And before we go into the wicked world, I just wanted mm. to ask you if you have three top tips for emerging talent, let's say. Yes, three. Oh, right. <laughs> Listen carefully to everybody, even if it's not your bag and it's the class you think this doesn't matter, because I promise you one day that little bit of information will be required and will ring true. Second of all, never think you're where you need to be because you can always 
you can always learn more, you can always work harder and work smarter. And three, be realistic with yourself. If you're in vocational training, ask people that you trust, what do you think right now my casting is? Or what do you think I should be focusing on? That's not about putting yourself in a box and limiting yourself. That's actually being clever and going, okay, like George, I'm five foot five. I sing like a leading man, but I don't look like one. But I'm also quite funny. I walk into a room and I'm not dashing, I'm hyper. You know, so I know what, you've got to know who you are and what you're presenting because that's what's going to get you the job. It's assumed that you're talented when you go in for work. If you've got a degree or a diploma from a college, that panel has only got you in because potentially you've got yourself the addition or your agent's got you it. But that, it's then, it's not impressive to them that you can do what they need you to do. Just in the same way that if I need a plumber, I don't go, oh, you can use a spanner. You know how to fix my toilet. That's their job, right? Yeah. I'll go back to the plumber that is reliable, that is kind, that is nice to me, that gets the job done, is worth the money. You know, it's a business like anything else. But certainly emerging talent, yeah, listen, keep growing and never settle and know thyself. Bam. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>to the beautiful show that is wicked oh here um, she is <laughs> obviously this has been a part of your life for i guess six years have i gotten 13, the right 13 13 since i yeah yeah five five out of 13 yeah wow wow wow, yeah. wow. let's talk a bit about that how did that journey start for you well Let's, again, let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> I remember when the show came out in 2003 and a friend of mine had gone to New York and hadn't seen it, but had heard about it, you know, picked up the CD and brought it home and we listened to it. We were both little theatre geeks. Oh, I love like, the CD days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have the best CD collection, but I sold it all to Move House. <laughs> so they've all gone. Um, but that just... I was like, oh, what is this wizardry? Um, and then I listened to it on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It just, it was so groundbreaking at the time, you know, musically, production-wise. The fact that it tags on to such a, such a classic story, you know, it was unbelievable that this thing had appeared. And I just, I was just utterly obsessed with it. And then you get to, no, that was 2003. So I go to college in 2005. So of course it's still the new show. So everyone's singing the material because it's brand new and it's everywhere. And then it opens in 2006. So I got preview tickets to go and see it on its preview week for £6.50, which I still have in my drawer. It's in a folder somewhere. And I was in row S, seat 25, I think, of the circle. And I sat there with my friend and it started and I just it did something quite peculiar to me and I just remember watching it going that's that's my job like that's it right there and the boy that the, the gentleman that played Bok in the original London cast is a brilliant actor who uh, I'm really fond of his name's James Gillen he's now and everybody's talking about Jamie he's done all sorts James and that's one of those careers that I wanted to emulate you know I knew who he was going in uh, and he's Scottish he's from Glasgow so I just thought well that suddenly makes it a bit more realistic I go he's Scottish I'm Scottish he's kind of short I'm kind of short he's got dark hair I've got dark hair you know um and I honestly I went to the bar at the interval and I said to my friend who I've just been working with an hour ago and we told this story and I said that's my part and she says I knew then that something had shifted something has changed within me um you know <laughs> she said I saw it you had this weird steely look in your eye and it was like that's it and so I then just when it came round, when the audition came round, I was ready because I'd been ready for two years, you know? And I went in and they were running late that day. So I only got to sing 10, 12 bars of music, but it was enough. And I got the recall and got sent all the material. And I did 10, 10 or 11 rounds for that first contract because I was only the third cast to go in. So the show was still pretty new and I'd only gone through one cast change at that point. So they didn't have quite the blueprint that they have now, you know, and they could take their time because it was the show that everyone wanted a part of. So they had their pick of the crop, really. So this process goes on and on and on and on. It's back in again, back in, back in. And then eventually it gets to, you've got to the final, but you had to film the final for the creative team in America and the management in America. 
because they have final say over all the casting. Mm -hmm. So you have a session where you prepare with the creative team in the UK ahead of the filming session. And I'll never forget, um, so Petra Sinyavsky, who's the associate director, is one of the most wonderful human beings in the, the world, but definitely in my life. She's such a dear friend. Um, I remember she was, you know, the resident director at the time before she then became associate. So I remember drama school training, ask a question, you know, <laughs> um, ask one, but make it a good one. Um, what was the other thing? You know, if you go in for a recall, don't change your appearance. So I'd worn the same stripy polo shirt and jeans and trainers to every single audition. I just used to wash them and put them back on again. <laughs> so because I was, I was, then I became obsessive. I was like, well, if I change my top, and I don't get it, it's because I changed my top, so just wear the same one. So I wore this stripy, I'll never forget it, stripy white polo shirt from Top Man or Burton's or something like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is the day before the filming, and she says, thank you, George. And I says, I've got a quick question. She says, yes. I says, is there anything you would recommend wearing for the filming session? And she said, not that. And I said, why is that? She says, because stripes don't show up well on camera. I thought, shit, I've been wearing this for two months. Like, I've got to. So ballsy little me went in the next day in my striped polo shirt and I got the job. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, uh, and then when I got to audition for the role two years later, because I went in as an understudy for two years, and then when I went in for my audition for the role, I wore stripes again. Different one. I didn't keep the same top on for three years. But I did wear my little, There is a there is an element of, not, not fate. I don't necessarily believe in fate. That's a bigger discussion. But I do, I, I can obsess over things. That's both a, both a blessing and a curse to me. Um, but I thought, well, you got it the first time because you wore stripes on camera, so just wear stripes again. Then I did get the part. So maybe stripes are a good thing for me. I don't know. Um, so lucky then, stripe. <laughs> lucky stripe, yeah. So then, yeah, that's, that's the very long story short And that I did three years on the trot from second cover to first cover to play the role. And then I decided to leave, not because I wanted to, but because I had to, because I knew if I didn't leave then, I would probably never leave because I loved it so much and I was so happy at work. And, you know, I'd then been in the show as long as I'd been at college. So out of six years in London, half had been at Mount View and half had been at Wicked. So you just go, oh God, I want to go and start again somewhere else now. And I'm in this great big show and, you know, I can afford my life and... It's a great life, but it was the creative team that said, like, you know, you've got the option to stay, but it's, now's probably the time to go. Go while you still love it, because you can always come back. And I thought, but you'll never have me back. <laughs> well, so I leave in 2011 and then go off and do a couple of different bits and bobs. And the phone rings in 2013. Agent, you know how much you like being in Wicked? Yeah. Well, they've asked you to come in for the tour. I says, they're doing a tour. Oh, brilliant. Cool. Never been on tour. Sounds a, a UK tour. She's great. Yeah, you've got an audition tomorrow. And I said, oh, what? <laughs> then, yeah, you've got an audition tomorrow. I thought, and I'd, admittedly, not being a diva now, but I said, I'm not auditioning for that part. I played that part for three years. What are you talking about? She says, well, take it or leave it. You've got an audition tomorrow if you want it. I says, fine. So I go in and, and you know, in all fairness to the team, they went, well, this one's a bit of a waste of time, isn't it? We may as well just talk about the next stage. So here's what to remind yourself of. This is how the scene goes. This is how the number goes. Let's hear all the material. Let's do all the scenes. And you haven't, you know, changed your appearance. You haven't shaved your head. You haven't put on 25 stone. You you are still George. So cool. But I did have to go back through the process. Recall, filming, final, all that again, because it was a brand new production. Oh, wow. And it wasn't an ego thing with me. It was more fear. I said, well, what? Well, what if it doesn't work out the second time? Then that's that's going to ruin the whole first one, you know. Mm. So I go off on the tour, and that was amazing to take the show out in a brand new production with slightly new choreography, slightly new direction, slightly new bits of set, all of those ad adjustments that you have to make when you're not in the Apollo Victoria. A brand new team of people, and to watch it be built from the ground up was 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 mind-boggling. You know, we get to the tech in Manchester, and it was like, we called it Mission Control, just these tech desks and people everywhere wires everywhere because bear in mind every light had to be plotted every effect had to be plotted every costume was handmade for the tour like it was brand new then the american creatives came over and they were there and it was just amazing so i did that till 2014 and then 
In 2015, I'm teaching a class and I get a phone call on a Wednesday at three o'clock. She says, are you free? She says, I'm not free, I'm in the middle of a class. She says, need you to put, the, put your tools down and uh, go to the theatre. It's like, what theatre? I went, go to the Paul of Victoria. I said, why? It's like, you're on tonight. I says, what? It's like, yeah, you're, you're, you're going on tonight. I was like, what are you talking about? She says, the, the boy playing Bach was on holiday. The first cover had conjunctivitis and the second cover was on, but he'd done his back in on the matinee. So I had to say, I'm really sorry, I need to go. Got in a taxi from Angel to Victoria, went to a costume fitting. My costumes arrived about an hour later. The creative team were in, now the matinee's going on and the creative team are in auditions for the recast. So I'm on my own, basically. Five past six, they get out of a taxi, see me, go on stage, walk through it for like 10 minutes. And uh, that was it. I met the cast on stage. I met the alphabet on stage. Did you just remember it all? Was it like muscle memory? Uh, yeah, totally. Because it's never changed, you know. So yeah, yeah, it just, it just had done it. I mean, I'm, I, I would like to know what the official figure is, but round about the 2000 performance mark is where I am. If I've not done it quite 2000, then it's nearly. So yeah, I did it that night and went home and that was it. One night only, I thought, gosh, that was a mind-boggling thing to do. In fact, that was, was that your grad show the next day or the year above you at RADA? Year above I you? I think, yeah, the year above us. It was year above you because I was directing the graduate showcase at Bodywork and it was the following day. So there you go. That's how I remember because I turned... Yeah, it was here above you. So that was that. And I thought, okay, job done. And uh, there was talk about potentially going back in to do the 10th anniversary, but um, we decided not to because they just didn't work out that way. And then I went in and did a stint 2019, November to January 2020, uh, for 12 weeks, which was a dream. You know, all those years later, go back in, do a little run, out you go. Amazing. And never say never. I never say never. Yeah. Because, if, if you know, if the timing was right and it came up again, why would I say, oh, I'm not going to do that? I, I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And it's a very huge part of my story, which I still have moments of and go, oh, my God, that was that CD I used to burn out listening to. And mm. it's it's arguably one of the, well, it's the biggest opportunity of my life. And those relationships have lasted forever. Like some of my best friends are from that job. We have a whole unit of friends. There's babies now, there's weddings now, you know, like we've all grown up together and we've grown up with the show. So when you go back and see it on like the 5th and the 10th and what will be the 15th, huge sense of pride to sit in that mix of people and go, but I saw you when I was at drama school and all that, you know, it's mad, it's mad. Such a wonderful full circle. Gives me chills. (laughs) I'm very, very lucky. I think think you only get one of them. Mm. I do. I think you only get one wicked. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got one last wicked question. Yeah, go on. Um, obviously, you've played the wonderful role of Bok over the years. Did he evolve and grow with you as well? Did the character evolve? Hmm. Probably, you know. I'll tell you what I did notice the most recent time round was that I didn't try so hard. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? I, I didn't put... I, I, in terms of... I didn't work so hard to, to, to do it. I relaxed into it a little bit more. And again, that's just experience. Um, but I listen, I've got some little rehearsal recordings and things from when I was in it the first time. And yeah, I was I was really going for it. But there's I think you just don't know at the time. There's that sense of I can't quite describe what I'm saying. Obviously, I was doing it right because they never they, they got me back and never complained about it. But I probably found more depth to it the third or fourth time round than than the first because the show is the show and the blocking is what it is and the choreography is what it is and the music is what it is but I think also I trusted my own voice a little bit more to go no you can't change what it is but to say to the director or the MD oh what about this can we chat about that you know um so it probably the role probably did but certainly not in a way that the audience would know it's more for me because yeah yeah. but I I felt different yeah I felt different amazing which is amazing which is amazing really Mm. because I let you know when I left in 2020 it was the week a week before what would have been the 10th anniversary of me taking over the role so Mm. yeah it's mad 
it's mad. And it is a brilliant show. I remember I friend of house there for a bit and I would not get sick of it. I was like, okay, I've no. got three weeks here. So I'm just going to sit and watch it. It didn't do my job. Mm. I, I didn't really do no. friend house. <laughs> I, I used to go up and watch um, Defying Gravity almost on the daily from the spot, the follow spots at the back of the building. I'd go yeah. up and watch it almost every night because I still think it's one of the best moments in the theatre ever. I do. Absolutely. There's well, a reason that show has touched millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And it will continue to. I mean, are they yeah. still doing a movie of it? Or is it just well, like... Apparently that's apparently that's even closer than, yeah. we, than, than I thought. But I, it's, it's been rumoured so many times I just wouldn't know what to believe. Until it's actually in production, I think... Who yeah. knows? Who knows? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, then we're coming on to a little fun question. Do you have any yes. superstitions or traditions that you do before a show? Uh, ooh. Oh, that's a good question, that. Um, <laughs> except for your stripy T-shirt. Except for my stripy T-shirt. I am a creature of habit. Ooh, yes. So I, I like to do things in exactly the same order before every show I get quite thrown if my time scale is not right mm -hmm. down to the way that I would lay out my like my makeup table you know shower hair the same playlist on face do the hair undies shirt tie trousers shoes check the hair you know all that scoosh scoosh brush your teeth all that yeah I, definitely is the answer then yes I don't think I have any kind of theatrical superstitions i never whistle in the theater and i never say the scottish play in the theater because <laughs> a, a dresser when i was starting out i was walking around going <whistles> she's like slap me the bang i should turn around spit say a swear word all that kind of thing um so i yeah i, I think the, you know the old ones you never see good luck and all the rest of it um but rather than a superstition yeah yeah maybe it is actually it, it, if my order is not right it throws me which is a very strange thing to say in live theater because very rarely does everything go to plan but i think the only thing that i can be in charge of is my time when i'm not on stage yeah. so yeah i like to be quite and I, I don't like anyone at the door i don't i turn my phone off like i need that 20 minutes to just go it's game time yeah because you're in control of that that's what you are in yeah control of, so. yeah it's the only one thing that you are really yeah and we're coming towards the end of our interview and I always have like a little block of questions that I ask. Mm -hmm. um, so in your opinion, what unites us as creatives? Oh, I think just the love of the job. Yeah. And whatever, whatever angle that is, whether you're on stage or screen behind the camera, uh, an artist, a set designer, uh, uh, you know, making a podcast, whatever it is. I think it's about a combined love of what we do and the need to say things out loud and to have a voice, to have an artistic voice. That's what makes the world go round, you know? And I think that company, that sense of company and community is is definitely what keeps me going. Because there's, like I said at the start, there's no people like show people. And, what, and you know, that's, that's true of everyone in the business and, and everyone that works in drama schools and works in every corner of it, you know, we all have that shared combined passion. And I think that that is probably the thing that brings us all because you can, you can forgive anything as long as the job gets done. Yeah. You don't have to be friends with everyone, but I think having professional mutual respect is the key thing. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what's the biggest thing that you have learned on your journey so far? Uh, that you never know when an opportunity will become an opportunity and that things take years and not days. Oh, I like that with the years and not days. It's Honestly, I, yeah, be patient. You know, um, I had a little hit list of jobs that I wanted to do. I had four dream roles and I've been fortunate enough to tick off three of them. Uh, and I think three out of four ain't bad. But that final one came out of nowhere in the weirdest roundabout way, which then again became a total life slash game changer. If I've got, have I got a minute just to tell you what that was? Or we've got all the time. Oh, got, in the whole right, world. Brilliant! I didn't, didn't know if you were what it. Maybe I was because I, I can go and go and go. I mean, um, I can listen to you for days, George. So, <laughs> oh god! So, 2017, agent calls and says you've been asked to do a self tape for Rusty and Starlight Express. I was like, what? Where? Germany? UK tours? Like, no. Working with Andrew Lloyd Webber, Arlene Phillips, and Richard Stilgo to redevelop the show. I was like, are you kidding me on? It's like, no. So 
do my tape, send it in, and hadn't had that kind of <laughs> waiting on the phone to ring for years until that point, because Rusty was on the hit list of parts. So anyway, I get it. And I get sent the cast list the night before we started. And I was looking at who I was surrounded by and I was just like, this is a full circle moment because in there was Oliver Thompson, who was my first Fiero, both as an audience member and as a cast member. Liam Tamney, who was in my first cast in the ensemble. And we kind of gone through the covers together and all that. Misha Paris, who's just a glorious talent. Sabrina Aloesh, Natalie McQueen. I mean, just these amazing people. And for the first time ever, my name was at the top of the list. And I went, oh, you've done it. Like, you've got, you've got the lead. And I sat, it was at the other palace in London. But sitting in that first day, I've never been so nervous. Because I, you knew the pressure was on. Because down walks Andrew Lloyd Webber. And then Arlene Phillips. And then Richard Stilgo. And then two of the producers from the Really Useful Group. And the vocal coach. And the orchestrator. And they're all just sitting there. And I'm at the top of the table for the first time ever I was like well no pressure that's Andrew Lloyd Webber <laughs> right just standing um, there <laughs> just uh, hello hello George you know oh hiya hiya and we had two weeks to work through the show because Arlene who again I'm still very much in touch with and that's been a wonderful thing to come out of that is that I made such a great friend in Arlene she was so amazingly supportive to me on that project and beyond that if she ever heard this, she would know I don't have to say much more than that because she just has eternal thanks from me. It makes me quite... Because she's been, honestly, amazing, amazingly supportive in every way. But we actually had our first encounter together when I was in third year at drama school when I auditioned for Britannia High, and she was the choreographer on that. Um, so again, 14 years later, 30 or however long... No, it was 10. It was 10 at that point. But 10 years later, we were back in the room and I was doing her show, and, you know, you just don't know. You didn't know when I was 19 that when I was 29 that was going to happen, you know. But out of that, it was like the biggest learning curve of my life because you just had to get the job done because you don't say no to the people that are writing it. You don't go, I can't do that, or that's too high, or that's too quick. You just go, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and we did it, and it was a huge success. But then I was in the bar, and it was like, oh, hi, Trevor Nunn. You know, oh. <laughs> hello. You created it. Hiya. Well, great job, sir. You know, oh, thanks. Thanks, Trevor, man. Um, everybody who was, every, everybody in the theatre industry was there, you know. And there was me at the front of it. And I just, you know, I was so overwhelmed, but just reminded me, 10-year-old me had a moment that day, just went, ah, oh, you've done it. Like, I honestly think if I never worked again, all those combined experiences culminating in that one would have been enough. Honestly, they would have been, like, I would have been, content to never do another job in my life because that I could never have asked for all Wicked and Sweeney and that and hair and all those amazing opportunities that have all lined up for me to be sitting in a room with Arlene and Andrew and they hand you the new version of Starlight Express that's been written for you it just was mind mind blowing and I still can't I still can't believe it sometimes and a few months later they called me up and asked me to record it for his greatest hits album so I did that and it was just me in a studio with Misha singing our beautiful huge amazing voice and she's looking through the glass and it's Andrew and Nigel Wright the producer who again was being a musician was a producer that I'd admired for years and years and years and getting a from those two I just was like oh my god this is you couldn't write it you couldn't write it because I had an Andrew Lloyd Webber Christmas when I was 10 got the music book from a keyboard got whistle down the wind on cd cats joseph and superstar on video three disc cd of all his music like you know i thought he wrote everything andrew i thought he was the guy that did musicals and that was it so, yeah i've got a very um pride of place at my front door there's a picture of the four of us and it's i'll show you come with me yes i want to see it it's on that was the cover of the score that they gave me on day one what uh, is your that name was, yeah and that was us on the last performance. And oh, then, that's incredible. There's Wicked up there. There's a poster. <laughs> yeah. And then we've got Big Fish up there. We didn't really talk about Big Fish because that was another little cracker. Um, mm. I saw but, you in that. Yeah, of course. Of course you did. did. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I went in it and I didn't really know what to expect because I wasn't really familiar with the um, actual show. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was insanely versatile. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing, amazing project to be a part of. Mm. And that followed on directly from Starlight. So I finished on the Saturday night with Starlight and then I started Monday for Big Fish. Both in the other palace as well. Both at the other palace, yeah, which then went on to be come and do the birthday party, come and do this and do that. And I ended up making a brilliant relationship with all those guys at the other palace and eventually went back and did a, a masterclass night in their studio space, which was brilliant. But Big Fish... I think what I can say is whether or not it was anybody's cup of tea, and I know that generally it really, really was. I mean, people were so moved by it because it's a heartbreaking and heartwarming show. Mm. For the 14 of us that put it together, it's a very, very special project and definitely the most difficult for me personally. Whatever, whatever was going on, I don't quite know, but I was just having a bit of a hard time at that moment in time. It happens, you know, and I was... I was struggling. I was struggling to find calm in myself. I was, it took me a while to connect with the piece. And it just was a hard couple of months, you know, for, what, for no particular reason, just was. And it was nothing mm-hmm. to do with the job. But of course, that's where you are 12 hours a day. So uh, it came out on that. And what's been brilliant is that speaking to people from that process further down the line now, because that was four or five years ago now. I make no apologies for it. I'm like, yeah, you didn't, they definitely didn't get the best version of me at all times, which I think is just real life. But yeah. I can, yeah, that's just part and parcel of being human. But it annoyed me because it was such a short project that the ego mind kicks in and you go, I don't want anyone's lasting impression of me to be that I was up and down like a yo-yo, but I was. But again, you live and learn. You go, why did that happen? Maybe there's no reason. Maybe there was something about the job. Maybe there was something about the whatever. I don't know. But what I do know is I'm proud to have been in it, attached to it and created it because it was a proper moment in time. And I got to work with Kelsey Grammer. So, you know, who gets to share a room with Fraser? You know, Um, (laughs) so see what I mean, though? Like I say these things out loud and I hear myself and I go, God, Mm. that's cool. That's really cool. (laughs) It is really cool. And you should be so proud of yourself. I am. I am. I'm very fortunate. I, I'm, I, I, I resist saying lucky mm. because I think you get luckier the harder you work. But fortunate yeah. and grateful are better words. I'm very grateful for the, for the work that I've had. And of course, there's an element of luck in there. The, the stars aligned and you're in the right place, right time. And, but there's a really good quote that someone said to me once. It was one of my best mates, Ashley. She said, luck is what happens when opportunity meets hard work. I like that. It's, it's yeah. right. Because if you work hard and you present yourself for opportunities and then something appears, if you're ready to hit the ground running, you're less lucky, you're just more prepared. That's why I love teaching. I think if I can be the voice of constant reason in your mind, it's not about how skilled you are. It's about being able to see like your year. Obviously, I had a huge connection with you guys. What, again, whatever happened, it was that mix of people at that moment in time. We just had a beautiful time together. Mm. And it was honest because there was ups and downs on a daily basis, but we all knew that it was coming from the right place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think we all we all knew that. And I loved my time at Bodywork. I did. It was a proper talk about family. I mean... There was only a hundred of us in the building, you know. There was, wasn't there? Such a was, tiny... Yeah, it was, it was like a sleepover, you know. <laughs> Everyone just like... And that's what I loved most about it, was that you could have real, honest conversations with anybody in the building, you know. Mm. And you get told the truth. People would be straight with you. Uh, they would. Yeah, Absolutely, they would. yeah. And I, I kind of miss that sometimes. And that's not anything to do with where I work now, because I love... I mean, I've been at Ardang for... Six years. I've never worked anywhere for six years. I've been at Erdang longer than I was at Wicked, uh, which is <laughs> mad. And I love, love, love it. And I love the school. I love my friends and my colleagues. And I adore working with the students. But it's true of vocational training everywhere that in a very positive way, <clears throat> we have to be mindful of words are like weapons. And that old school brutality is almost gone which is good because it's quite damaging at times but I think speaking to friends who work across the country and actually in other countries I do miss some of that kind of being in a bit a bit more brutal and to the point you know that's not a comment on students that's just a comment on the world there's a lot of censorship lots of it for good but some of it I don't know how positive that is long term when you when you're dealing with adults with young adults and not children yeah the way I would the way that I would communicate with a 19-year-old is not the way I would communicate with a nine-year-old. 
because the job has never changed. The way that we learn has never really changed. Nothing really changes. We just move with the times. What I do love about college now is that there is a much bigger sense of self and that anyone can be truly themselves with no judgment, with a, a, a platform and open dialogue that I am very proud of and to be a part of, to be, I will champion all of you because, you know, who says you can't live your best life? You know, yeah. as long as, as long as the job gets done, that's more important to me. I do not care how you carry yourself, present to the world. I will support and fly the flag for you. However, what I do care is if you're late or your homework isn't done or you're not pulling yeah. your socks up or you haven't learned what are done, your, you know, all that kind of thing. Get back to the job, you know. Yeah. That's what I love it. What we have to remember is that one ill-timed comment from us can cause a lifetime's hang-up in someone. And we have a great responsibility to be sensitive to that, that you are dealing with people's life's ambition. It's not a joke. And people are, not everyone, but the majority will be hanging on your every word to guide them in the right way. That's why they're there. And you, one, mustn't disrespect that because there's a huge element of trust in training. If you don't trust the people that are steering the ship, then you're going to want to get on the lifeboat and go somewhere else. Yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Um, and then this is my absolute favorite question of uh-huh. every single interview. Oh, I'm excited now. What makes you unique as a creative? Oh, God. That is really true. Does everyone find this one difficult? Yes, but you're all smile and it's just amazing. <laughs> because you want to say something like, imagination you know (laughs) spark energy all those things you can want from somebody who's a creative me real I'm a real person yeah I can't I can't do the bullshit and there are no versions of me you'll get me in a class the way that someone will get me in a rehearsal room the way that someone will get me in an interview all that changes most of the time is the way that I speak purely to be understood by the people that I'm speaking to so if I if my sister listened to this, she would think you sound like a twat. Like you don't, <laughs> don't sound like you're from here. And that's just that that's that's just having an awareness of being understood. That's not pretending to be something. The one thing I can honestly hand on heart say is that everyone gets me the same way. Everyone. If, yeah, I think that's probably it. Gen, maybe genuine. I'm, I think I, I like to think I'm a genuine person. And in terms of being a creative, I'm honest about not always having the the answer for everything and being open to that and going, do you know what? Your voice and opinion is just as valid as mine. My job is to culminate all that and make a choice. And that's what I've come to learn to maybe to conclude is that in my effort to get everything right, I didn't stop to just enjoy the ride. And if I could do anything again, it would be that would just be to relax into trust that everything will happen in good time. There mm. is no great race to the finish because you don't know the minute. You just don't know the minute. Yeah. Before we finish today, I could honestly just listen to you for days and go on and on. But <laughs> do you have any last comments or advice that you want to say to the listeners today? Yeah, I think uh, to everybody that's listening during the current climate, just stop worrying about things you have no control over. I have made a conscious decision to only focus on the things that I can be in charge of. Whether that be work, money, training, friends, family, health, whatever it may be, just do you and keep it simple. Because there's enough talk all the time and fear and kind of fear mongering. I just, I'm so, I'm so glad. I just right at the start, I went, I can't change this. Mm-hmm. I can only do my bit and I think if you can put your head down in the pillow at night and know you've done your level best that's it and just give yourself a break if you're having a shit day have a shit day and own it and go do you know what I'm not answering the phone see you later do you know what I mean it's okay not everyone has to be their best selves that's not real life and what this has done is held a magnifying glass up to everyone and I think it has made everyone certainly it has me simplify and strip back and go I can be on my own I live on my own in here I love it it's like my little haven I've become a bit of a hermit. Yeah, I miss my mates. But no one's saying that I'm locked in and I'll never see them again. It's just, have you know, learn a, 
bit of patience and this is not going to last forever it's oh, just no. not yeah and in the grand scheme of our lives it's that size the time mm. so just give yourself a break listeners Give yourself a break and have another coffee and have a wine if you want. It's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, we're all human. So, of course. <laughs> of course. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been such a joy listening to you and your honesty and just your energy is amazing. And I'm so thankful that you had time. It's my absolute pleasure and so brilliant for us to reconnect over something as exciting as this. And well done, you. What a fantastic project. <laughs> so I'm very, very thrilled to be involved. Um, what I will say, if anyone's listening and anything's popped up that they want to ask about, I think it's going to be my socials will be on the post. Absolutely. Uh, uh, so hit me up. I can't promise I'll reply straight away because I've got a lot on at the minute, but I promise you I will come back eventually. If there's anything on your mind about either training, going to, leaving college, whatever it is, just hit me up because I'll pay it forward is, is all we can do. Yeah. And you're lovely. <laughs> ah, thank you, darling. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Artist Avenue will be back next Tuesday with another exciting interview. Make sure to follow us on social media and keep up to date with all the artists and their wonderful projects. Your support for this podcast honestly means the world to me. For now, keep smiling, keep listening, and I'll see you all next week.